Thank you, Sheila. And Tenakoto, 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 Kato. Uh, welcome. Kia ora, welcome, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to introduce you to this Kiwi Focus webinar. Um, and a very special welcome to all our Australian colleagues who are joining in. Um, we're really pleased to have you with us. It's a pleasure today to introduce you to Dr. Alan Watkinson. Um, I've had the privilege of knowing Alan for some time, and like many of you, I'm very grateful to him for his generosity with his knowledge, support, and his encouragement. Um, Alan has worked in education uh, for his entire career, beginning uh, at Scotch College. Uh, I met him when he was Director of Development at uh, Trinity College in Melbourne, and from there he's gone to La Trobe University uh, and done a great, great things uh, there with the campaign. Um, Alan is a former Chairman of Educate Plus, and uh, he's had deep involvement um, in uh, bequests, and uh, Alan, we're very, very grateful to you um, for today and you sharing your knowledge. Um, for myself, I'm a New Zealand Chapter President at Educate Plus. Um, I'm in the, at the University of Canterbury. I'm in a major gifts role and um, I, I know the power of bequests. They can be absolutely transformative uh, for an institution, but they can also be quite hard to talk about. So, um, Alan, thank you again uh, so much for uh, sharing with us today. And uh, at that point, I'll, I'll hand over to you to get started. Thank you very much indeed, Naomi. Uh, a very warm afternoon, good afternoon to our friends in New Zealand. I'm sitting here in Melbourne and uh, welcome to all of my colleagues around Australia. Wherever you are, I hope you're keeping yourself as safe and well as possible in the midst of the big challenges which we face. And of course, the challenges are one of the things which have led in many ways to further discussions about this whole issue of bequests and legacies. And there's a lot of material to get through today. Uh, there are actually about 97 slides, so some of them will be a little bit quick. The slide pack will be available for you to download at the end. It's already with Educate Plus, so don't feel you have to take lots of screenshots or, or do anything like that. Um, I'm very grateful to everybody who completed the survey. I think that was yesterday or the day before and uh, sent through their major concerns and interests, which was very helpful. And I hope that I'll be able to cover all of those in the presentation. If there are further questions, obviously you can send them through to Sheila during the uh, presentation. I'll try and get to questions at the end, but also feel free at the end to, uh, to email me and I'm happy to take things offline if you'd like. So let's get going. I hope you're buckled up. Uh, there's a lot of material to get through. Uh, the first thing is about, you know, we all know the word bequest. We also know the word legacy. Um, the word legacy is bandied around a lot and not everybody likes it, but specifically what we're looking at here is what people leave behind after they have gone. And the purpose that they leave it behind is something which is very important. And one of the main focuses I want to have a look at today is how this works for the future of the institution. Bequests are not necessarily just for the here and now. In fact, they rarely are because people of my age are hoping to last a little bit longer. And therefore, when I look at my will and I make a bequest, I'm thinking about something 20 or 30 years ahead. So I'm looking at how to future-proof an institution. And we also know that sometimes bequests are seen as 
not exactly trivial, but they can be seen as the area for dilettantism. I think they are often seen as an add-on to a program, something you can do if you've got a bit of time, or more importantly, something opportunistic. Someone pops out of the woodwork and says, oh, I wouldn't mind leaving a bequest to your institution. What do I do? And what I noticed from the surveys which came back uh, yesterday was that about 60% of you who responded do not even have a program. There is no program. And of the people who responded, not one of them said there was a full-time person working on bequests. Uh, it was all a little bit of this, a little bit of that, if we've got time, um, or, you know, we would like to, but we just don't quite know how to do it. So there's a huge opportunity out there. And one of the things I want to stress today again is that this should be taken very seriously. This is an investment opportunity for your institution. It therefore, as with any investment, it needs a strategy, it needs a program, and it needs metrics. And if it is left simply as something which is a nice to do, let's see if we can squeeze it in sometimes, it's never going to be ultimately that successful. So you have 10 seconds to have a think about these four questions. Do you know how many people in New Zealand, what percentage don't actually have a will at the moment? Have you any idea what percentage of charitable income comes from bequests in the UK, in Australia, or New Zealand? Five seconds left. Four, three, two, one. I hope you've got some answers because this is what the truth is. In New Zealand, currently, there are about 47% of the population who do not even have a will. A current will. It may have changed over the last three months, but that was what was there about you know earlier on this year. In Australia, that number is actually 39%. 39% of Australians don't seem to have a will. Uh, in the UK, 33% of income for charities comes from bequests. In the USA, believe it or not, at the time that this was uh, commissioned, about four or five years ago, uh, it was 13% of charitable income in the US came from bequests. In Australia, we don't quite know, but all the indications are from the JB Weir research and so on, that it is a significant and growing percentage of charitable income is coming from bequests. And in New Zealand, it's predicted at the moment to grow between 8 to 15% of charity uh, of income um, coming from requests for charities. So there's already quite a lot happening, but as you can see, there is scope for a lot more. And we often think, this goes back to my, my uh, comment about dilettantism, that this is just something we don't really want to do. Um, it's difficult to talk to people about death. Um, not true, complete myth. I've started a couple of bequest societies and programs in the past, and I was very nervous, but I very quickly realized that people, particularly older people, are very happy to talk about, when I'm no longer here, this is what I think I'd like to do, because in a way it, it defers the reality, but it gives them an anchor in the future as well. So thinking that people don't want to talk about it is a complete myth. Um, bequests happen, well, of course they do, but they tend to happen to other institutions 
if you don't have a program. Because if people are not asked, it's the same with any kind of giving, any kind of giving program. If you don't ask people, they tend not to give. The odd thing will float out of the sky, sure. But if you want a program and something which is an investment, which will give you a long-term return, a long-time return, you need to get invested in there. And, uh, you know, the fact that some people think that it's wealthy people who give you big buckets of money out of nowhere, complete and utter myth. Again, occasionally something will happen. When I was at La Trobe University, we did. We actually had a 1.2 million gift which came out of the blue, and we spent half a year trying to find out why this person had left us money. There was no connection with the university. There were no relatives. There was absolutely nothing. And we never found out. Couldn't thank anybody, couldn't do anything apart from acknowledge a name. So occasionally it happens, but mostly it doesn't. And just to think that people won't care because they will no longer be here, they won't care about what happens to their bequest, absolute rubbish. This is one of the most serious decisions that people make in their lives. What to do with their charitable intention after they have looked after their family and other interests. It is a very big decision and therefore they take it seriously and so we need to take it seriously as well. Because what we do here is actually to safeguard the long-term interest of our institutions and build financial security as an investment. You can think of this in all kinds of analogies. I mean, one thing that popped into my mind this morning was it's kind of like um, an annuity guarantee. You put a lot of investment into it and eventually you build up your pot sufficiently so that every year there's income which is generated by the investment. In Australia, we call them endowments. In New Zealand, I think you tend to call them uh, capital guaranteed funds. But what happens is you get you build that fund and it generates income and, and the income generated supports the institution into the long term. It's a safeguard and it's a very, very important safeguard. And we certainly know uh, from what we have learned in schools this year, that with the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact on families who have children at schools, uh, that those institutions with reasonable endowments, which have been built up over many years, have been able to help families quite extensively. And so there is an example, a real-time example of how bequest programs which contribute to endowments or capital guaranteed funds actually help real people in real time when there is a real need. The other thing, of course, is that most of us are more asset rich than have disposable income. And so there is a market there to, to try and tap into those assets as they are being disposed of after family, after other interests have been considered. There's been a lot of research on bequests and bequest programs over many years. And I'll be referring to material going back to the early 2000s and some much later material. Most of this is still absolutely true and it doesn't change. The principles are always going to remain the same. So we need to talk always about the future and the impact, and the impact on both the institution, but more particularly the impact on individual people. In our schools, in our universities, those who benefit most from bequests have tended to be 
students. So there are the scholarships, there are the bursaries, there are all kinds of ways of financially supporting students who for various reasons face great difficulties either getting into an institution or remaining into an institute or remaining in an institution. But so the impact is on people. And as we know from any kind of fundraising, when you focus on people, that's when the maximum impact comes, that's when people get most emotionally involved. Because we're talking about the future, we're talking about aspirations. We're talking about building a better world, a better community, a better institution, which can serve everybody. And these are major aspirations. It's not, can we find enough money to build a new swimming pool or a new uh, shed for changing down at the rugby or anything like that. Those are the here and nows. People who are thinking about leaving bequests are thinking into the future. So what's going to be important for the institution? Safeguarding it, safeguarding the people who come to it so that the institution will survive. And we do need to remember that as with major gifts, not many people just want to give to the bucket these days. If you go out and say, you know, my institution will need money one day, please give to us and we will do what we think is best with it. Most people do not wish to do that. They don't trust institutions as much as they used to. They want to know the purpose, the focus, the cause, the case, and what's going to happen. How can we measure whether this is good or not? And I will talk about metrics later on. So this is some material. I said we're going, going back to the early 2000s. Uh, this gentleman, Dame Green, in America did a lot of research over 15 years and came up with these statistics, which I think nobody could really question. Uh, we probably all know this as common sense. That if you talk to people, if you thank them, if you write them thank you letters, if you give them calls and so on and so forth, they respond well. We have a word for it. It's called stewardship. And if you steward people well, they respond well. And he actually were, was able to tabulate this and give us some figures about how, how more responsive people were if they were stewarded and treated well. The last point here I think is very interesting. And it goes back to that myth about you know, bequests falling out of the sky, uh, that only well, fewer than one donor in 14 actually had told the institution they were going to leave a bequest. Now, part of this is probably around in the early 2000s that there weren't effective bequest programs and people who were trying to cultivate and at least find out some basic information. And if, you had, and if people had decided to leave a bequest, they put it in the will, they didn't necessarily tell the dog's home or you know, the school or the university or the college or the cancer clinic, they didn't necessarily tell them it was just something they did because bequests are always seen as very sensitive and very private. But these days with the bequest program, one is trying to find a little bit more indication of what is happening and how this works. Okay, quick question. Here, here are three questions for you, 10 seconds. Uh, this is research which was carried out in the UK. Five seconds left, put your answers down. This is like playing hard quiz, isn't it? You have a hashtag at home and come up with ridiculous answers. Okay, there's your time limit. So, 
Uh, I wish I could hear you do a show of hands, but I'm going to have to tell you the answers and I can see about four people and I'll see if they're nodding or not nodding. This is in the UK, that if you don't actually have a will, uh, remember there's a very large percentage of people who don't have a will, um, 47% roughly in, the, um, in New Zealand, uh, the average age of death is 69, or it was 69 about five years ago. If you do have a will, if you sort of get yourself organized and get it all signed up and you feel very good about yourself, the um, average age of death goes up by 10 years. You, you die at 79, which is pretty good, actually. But the real killer, sorry, no pun intended there, um, but the, re the real benefit out of this is for those people who then included a charitable bequest in their wills, their life expectancy went up to 82. So big, big incentive for everybody to leave a charitable gift because you live longer and it takes longer for the charity to get your money. So there's a sort of, again, this is statistical. It's a great investment and it's a great way. I don't know you necessarily talk to a prospective bequester like this to say you will live longer if you give the money in your will, but there is a reality around it um, and it's good research. And here's some more research, which I always find very interesting, uh, but it's not surprising because this is all related to major gifts or, or any sort of asking for money. That if you do not ask, you don't give. Um, people haven't got round to giving. They haven't got round to making a will because they think they're a bit too young for it or they just haven't got bothered. Um, and then they office, obviously, some of them think that they, it's not worth it because they haven't got enough to live, uh, to leave behind. But then the whole will becomes intestate and whatever there was goes basically to um, the process of getting it all solved. So these reasons, I think, are not really surprising. And it exposes the opportunity that we have to work with people to help them make decisions, to give them the opportunity to make decisions which will be good for them and good for our institutions. And I think this is why, what our job really is. Uh, when I was a, a teacher in the classroom, um, the word teacher became a little bit old fashioned and we had to become facilitators of knowledge transfer. Um, I think teacher probably means the same thing. But, as a bequest program director or somebody working in the bequest area, we become facilitators. And one of the most important things to remember is while we are representing our institutions, we are working with a potential supporter, a donor, to try and realize her or his aspirations. And one of the words which will occur occasionally in my presentation is a word uh, which is gaining more credence in this kind of work, and it's transcendence. It's the transcendence of the potential bequester. And that means, what is it of myself which will be left when I am gone? And there are a couple of interesting examples to illustrate the point. If you had a nice desk, or say a piano, or an object which you wanted to leave to an institution because it was important to you and you thought it might be useful for the institution. And you leave it to the institution and it's got the Alan Watkinson plaque on it because it means something to me and to them. That is 
something which is concrete and eventually will have no meaning because the connection will go if it's an object it'll probably get worn out it'll be destroyed it'll be maybe be sold on or it may no longer have any purpose but if there is something which lasts longer is as for example in a scholarship a named scholarship for oneself one's family uh, a particular person then that lives on through the name but also through the impact on human lives because that name becomes associated with ongoing living people and this form of transcendence means that what is left behind continues and continues and there is a kind of reassurance psychologically for people around this and there's been some very interesting research done around this whole psychology of what people leave why they leave it and how they leave it and we might touch on that a little bit later so opportunities here's a lot of facts and figures for you ladies and gentlemen which i hope will illustrate exactly why you need to be investing in this and it will strengthen your opportunity to go to your leadership and say we as an institution should be investing in bequest programs because the return is the best you can get so uh, here are a couple of graphs here the left one here this is australia you can see the number of people growing um, in a in the age categories over 65 and over if you look here i mean grow we're growing up here 20 percent of the population over 20 percent of the population by 2057 ish will be over 65. so the demographic is increasing and therefore the potential for working with an older group to talk about their charitable intentions is bigger and bigger over in new zealand here if you look at this black line um, if you look at this is basically from 60 plus going down here and excuse this this is not me this is the um uh, jb weir have got that wrong it should be 250 and 300 not 250 200 um, but if you add all of that up there's about a million people at the moment out of your is it 4.8 million something like that population about a million people are in the 60 plus age category that's a lot of people who have the potential to be talked to now about their intentions again if you look at new zealand um, i'm afraid it's just a fact you can have a look at this it may be a bit gloomy but um, the death rates are going up so 2015 16 17 i think it might have been 33,000 people died in new zealand right but sorry i'll go back but these other figures are also really important for you if you're talking to your institutional leaders the bottom figure in particular is the one which you need to focus on because approximately from all the research which is done by jb weir philanthropic services there about 200 million dollars is going to be left annually at the moment in bequests so the question i ask you and you should be asking your institutional leaders is do we want any of that and if we do how do we invest in order to tap into that market 2.1 billion over the next 10 years it's about 200 million dollars a year it's it's worth looking at don't you think good investment opportunity and this information again is very useful look at it's this line here the bequests line uh, 24 years ago 23 years ago probably 
$25 million a year was left in bequests. 23 years later, $194 million left in bequests. That's huge growth. And it's going to continue. But this is, this is research. This is not anecdote. This is not some thought. This is hard data which informs strategic investment decisions in an institution. Anybody who is leading an institution and involved in thinking about the future of an institution is looking for additional income streams and ways to safeguard the institution. Here is data which supports an investment in bequest programs. And you can see here again, um, it's uh, this interesting color, reddish color. This is the amount, oh, I'm sorry. This is the amount which is left, has been left uh, to education and research. I'm really interested here. There was something happened in 2012 in New Zealand. And I'd love somebody to tell me what it was because I haven't found out yet. And this is replicated in some other graphs which come through. But there was some sort of um, incentive for people to die. I don't know. <laughs> but there's a lot of money which suddenly came in the peak. But if you look at that, even so, the amount going into education, apart from there, is reasonably static here. Uh, $45, $50 million a year. Uh, in 2015 going into education and research by, uh, by bequests. And this translates it into a slightly different form. Um, this is the actual amount of money. Um, so it's, it's sort of stable, but going up a little bit over the last two or three years. These are estimates, of course, by J.B. Weir, uh, that it's going to get to $250 million 2018 when they finally do their uh, their final research on this, about 250 million will go to education through donations and bequests. This is not purely bequests, it's um, major giving and bequests. More interesting perhaps is this, which is pretty constant, means about 15% of um, charitable money is going in this direction all the way through. It's a very constant amount. Uh, this just shows you, again, in New Zealand, where people are working. And it's interesting for me to see that there's a decline, both in the number of charities working in the education sector there. It's dropped from 6262 down to 6140. It's not a huge drop, but obviously some charities have dropped out or maybe have amalgamated in that area. Um, but the percentage is interesting. There's only 22% of all charities now working in uh, education and research in New Zealand. So what does that mean in terms of opportunity? I would suggest that it, it shows there is more opportunity for those who are already there to expand into the marketplace. And I want to put this one in just because we all need a bit of unreality check occasionally, and there's no place more unreal than America at the moment for all sorts of reasons. Um, but this came out oh, only about uh, a month ago. This is the, the latest uh, US charitable giving. And you can see the, um, the information at the bottom. But here, here is the latest. For 2019, 
of income in charities. It's dropped from 13%. Remember I said in the very first slide, it was about 13% four or five years ago. It's dropped down to 10% of charitable giving uh, comes by bequests in America. Now, that's all lovely um, if you think it's $43.21 billion is coming from bequests in America. It's an unreality check. But the percentage is about right. It's still um, a major force for charitable giving, but it's not the biggest. And it probably never will be the biggest in any one year. But in accumulation, because you get more and more people and, a, and the constancy of it, it's a very, very important way to invest in the future of any institution. Uh, now, this was, um, this was a masterclass given uh, last year, and it's quite interesting because, again, it's, it's basing, um, it's using data and projecting in a very realistic way. Uh, the historical income generated through bequests uh, is this one that so you can see reasonable and you can see how it grows and then they've taken these three particular scenarios uh, the over optimistic perhaps um, going up by 2.6 times uh, the standard and a pessimistic which is probably where we would feel ourselves to be at the moment a little bit pessimistic because of the pandemic and then in australia we have the additional impacts of droughts um, and we've had floods and we've had all kinds of, of issues. Um, and of course, around the world at the moment, the uncertainty in the economic situation would probably put us there. But even so, uh, sorry, I've gone the wrong way. Even so, they're looking at 3.7 or 3.7%, 2.1 factors of growth in the next 20 years. So there's a lot of opportunity. And that's the point we need to hang on to. No matter what the forecast is, opportunity all the way. Um, and here it is again. We've talked about this. This is in Australia. 45% of people, 47% of people don't actually have a will. Um, this very small percentage have a will with a bequest, and they're the people who are going to live longest. Uh, but the opportunity to convert that into this and into that huge opportunity. Uh, a few more sh uh, snapshots from a couple of years ago, 2018. Um, this helps us to identify really good opportunities and segments of our audience. So the 60 to 74 year, a year old age group is a very good one for givers. And as I'll touch upon in a little bit later on, people who are regular givers are going to become our best possible supporters in bequest programs. Um, the bequest income is rising there uh, from 2012 to 13, up 37% for some organizations. Um, and most not-for-profits have some sort of bequest program, 70% of them. Um, these, these statistics, I think, are useful, uh, but they're not the most important thing. So I'm going to, you can always check these out. Uh, and I put them in so you can refer to them rather than me spend a lot of time talking about them because it's far too easy to get bogged down. But have a look at these things. 30% of final estates with children include, uh, without children include a bequest. What does that tell you? If 30% without children include a bequest, 
4.3% with children included bequest. Your target audience, first target audience is going to be people without children, single men, single women, couples without children, because they're more likely to leave the bequest. So the statistics, the data helps to inform the decisions you make. And this is a bit of a recap, but it's important just to remember that for most institutions, the bequest program is the greatest potential for long-term income because it capture the asset market, not the disposable income market. And I go back to this word transcendence, which is an important factor in what people are thinking about. Um, and the last point to make there, which I think is very important for us, is that uh, bequest programs are now more visible, they're more acceptable, they're not seen as ghoulish or difficult. Uh, it's an actually well, a, a well-resourced program is a very effective way of representing your institution in a sensitive and an intentional way to secure further investment in it. So bequest programs are not taboo. So people tend to leave in their wills um, the following things, obviously um, a, a sum of money or a percentage, even a residual part of their estate. Uh, they leave the dreaded stocks and shares, which can create nightmares unless you have a strong policy around what happens to them. Uh, insurance policies have been left. Properties, of course, are fairly significant. Sometimes possessions can be very tricky. You don't necessarily want Auntie May's bookcase with all of her connection of the Robert Jordan novels or whatever else. Um, and often you get wonderful artworks and cultural artifacts which have their own issues associated with them as well. So those are the main things that people leave. And this one, this, this graph is the one which is the the seal for the deal, if you like, when you go to your educational leaders, the people who make the decisions about investments, this 2018 research shows that if you invest in bequests, it is the strongest return in investment you can have. For every dollar spent, you get about $56, $57 back. Um, and if you just trace along, the major gift is obviously next because you spend a lot of attention on those trying to get the big, big gifts. And surprise, surprise, um, events and lotteries or the, the, the raffles you hold at the cake stall, they are the least return you can get. They often are very labor intensive. They often cost quite a lot of money in events to get them set up. And what you get back is never really worth the effort. So that's not quite true. Of course, there are all sorts of benefits which come from events and lotteries and so on, which are not financial. But the financial return is the lowest possible. Bequests, really high. Okay, so moving on to what you need. Um, people said one of the biggest issues they had was they don't know how to start, they don't know what they need to put it into operation. These are the things you've got to have. And only the last one is non-concrete. That's your human characteristic. You've got to be patient. But the rest of it, all of this is very, very clear. And a lot of it has already been referred to. No surprises, I hope. 
One of the things that I have seen around the, the tracks when I've been working with schools and other institutions is that with requests, there frequently is not actually a clear case for support. It's seen as a nice thing. Support our institution of the future. Leave a gift. We'll look after it. But why? What is your real case? Why should I leave your institution a bequest? And what impact will it have? What problem will it solve? How will it be lasting? These questions are really important and they have to be answered if, you have a, if you're going to have a strong program. And I hope you'll notice that I'm very deliberately using the word program, program, program. I'm not using club, society or anything else. And I'll come to why I don't use that word in a minute. But we talk about a program because it involves structure, purpose, metrics, plans, actions, tracking, all of those things. That is the program. Right. I get 10 seconds now to have a quick breather. Um, please take your 10 seconds and work out which of the following groups are the best prospects. I think I've given you a few hints already. So if you were awake, you'd be able to get 10 out of 10 on that one. Um, and which are the most likely to leave a bequest? You've got 10 seconds, well, about five now. Okay, I'm looking at a couple of old oh, people are still looking at the screen, but I'm going to tell you in any case, because I've already told you the first one, haven't I? Um, from the data, we've already seen single men, single women, and alumni with no children are the first strata of people who are really good to go and talk to. Parents who are also alumni and wealthy male alumni, fine. The first people to talk to are those who don't necessarily have the other big family connections they need to look after first, like children and so on. So that's very clear. And the ones who are most likely to leave a bequest through all the research that has been done are your annual donor, because they are actively involved in your institution all the way through, and they know it, and volunteers because volunteers are also actively involved. And remember, we're not asking them for money now. We're not asking, well, the annual donors we are, but we're not asking for the major gift time and time again. It's about engagement. It's about passion for your institution. It's about looking to the future of the institution. And so those people who are regularly engaged are clearly gonna be the ones who are most likely. Doesn't mean you won't get major donors and non-donors leaving you, but this is the, statistical likelihood and then people leave bequests for various reasons and there's that word again i've put in transcendence and immortality um, but they are rather like in major donors in the first few they have reasons which motivate them uh, commemoration saying thank you uh, this is particularly true i think in medical charities saying thank you because they've looked after a member of the family or, or an instance like that um, but saying thank you to a school for the education which has helped them to get to the place they are now thank you to a university which gave them the research opportunities and so on um, 
And there are just a couple of examples, named scholarships, travel scholarships, um, scholarships to get into a university, whatever. So people have reasons and we have to work with them to understand the reasons and to make sure those reasons align with what our institution is doing. Remember, facilitation, alignment, passion for an institution and looking to the future. And with all of that, I will come, I will mention the Bequest Society because it's something which pops up for all of us. And Bequest Societies obviously have very visible presence. They are powerful symbols and logos. And so they're very, very important to have a think about. Um, here's just one example. But what I want to stress with about a Bequest Society is it's not the program. The program is all the bits and pieces, the structure, the plans, the activities, the tracking, the reporting, the solicitation, all of that, that's the program. The society, whatever you choose to call it, and some people don't even get that fussed about a name, but the society is the vehicle which provides a membership and provides a means of information. It provides a bit of an identity for those people who have become part of the program. It's not the end goal because you will have people, and we've all probably all seen this if you've worked in the question, people who wish to remain anonymous, who don't want to have their name listed in your annual record or up on a plaque or anything else like that. So you may say you certainly are a member of our organization or society, but that's not the end goal. The end goal is to get them or to help them make a decision and offer them the opportunity to support your institution into the future and shape the future world through their own legacy. So here are some things you probably recognize a few of these. Am I seeing Naomi nodding there? I think I am somewhere. Um, there are, I think there's some New Zealand ones, there's some um, Australian ones, of course. Um, there's the Alexander Morrison Circle, I will say very proudly, was the one that I founded at Scotch College back in, or started, I should say, um, back in 2005, and it's still going strong. They have identities, and the identities for each of these societies are resonating with the institution, representing the institution, and, and create a visible uh, uh, kind of anchor point for people who wish to be involved in the program. Uh, and it's important to have something which represents your institution is, and is identifiable. And again, as I've said, the, the society isn't the end goal, but it's a very useful way of engaging with people, having a reason to bring people together, uh, the Alexander Morrison Circle has a lunch or it has a cocktail party with you are a member, we'd like to invite you. So there's the identity around the event and the stewardship. But all it is doing is, is, is recognizing that the bequest program has been successful and Alan has signed up as a bequestor and therefore we would like to recognize it through the membership. So these are the reasons why a bequest society is a very useful thing. And it allows us to keep that close connection. It's the visual identity, the brand identity, which is derived from the institution. 
and it allows it uh, allows anybody who is part of it to uh, identify and be proud of that association. But remember, you will have people who will always want to remain anonymous. I've mentioned this before, and I think this is incredibly important. And what uh, some of you may have been on uh, a webinar or a couple of months ago that Penny Bowman and I did around strategic planning and the importance of having a strategic plan and a case for support. Now, institutions, schools, universities, colleges, they will have those plans. But does the development or advancement office have its own strategic plan which derives from the institutional strategic plan? I would hope by now the answer is yes, because you all attended the webinar and you all went off and you wrote your strategic plans, your annual plans and everything else. So that's very good. But now if you look at a bequest program, do you actually have a plan for it? Do you have a strategy for it? Or is it just something which will happen if there's an opportunity? I'm going to say that you need to have a strategy and you need to have a clear case. So this is the bequest vision. Why, do, why would people leave a bequest to my organization? And the reason is that where we've had such support before, there has been a real impact. And here are the examples of the impact which bequests in the past have had. Whether you've had a program or not, most institutions have had some sort of bequest or benefaction somehow in the past. It's very unusual for, for an institution which is more than 50 years old not to have had some sort of gift given from the will. So what happened? What was the impact? Tell me a story. What's the future needs? And we don't talk just about capital needs because who knows in 30 or 40 years time what the capital need or the program, you know, building program need will actually be. Things change so quickly. But what doesn't change? The fact that you have pupils, students coming, you have teachers, lecturers there, you have needs for research or facility, you know, um, program facility. So those are needs which a school or an institution will always have, how to attract students, how to support students, how to increase DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion in an institution, how to help socially disadvantaged, financially disadvantaged families and students to have the opportunity of a good education. Those are aspirational future needs of any institution, educational institution. And then the other thing that this case has got to show is that you're good. You can manage this. That if somebody gives you a, leaves you a bequest, gives you a gift, it does what that person wants and it's not snaffled away and you put to some other cause. If somebody is going to make this huge decision, possibly the last major decision they make in their lives to support something in the future, they need to be certain and feel confident that that need will be met. So you have to have proof for that. And then, if you've got all of that, you can have the conversation with somebody who's interested in leaving a bequest to find out what they would like to do, what their aspiration is, what their legacy or their transcendence might be. 
and work with them to see if it aligns with your institution and bring it to fruition. So it's about conversations and building the long-term relationship where the individual aligns with the institutional needs and aspirations. And there are some good examples here. Um, I've taken the following uh, from websites. It's all publicly available. Um, some are better than others, and I'm not passing judgment. I am simply showing you some of the things which are out there. So if you're talking about a, a case on a website, it's not going to be a main marketing thing by any means. But people, if they are thinking about leaving a bequest to the University of Canterbury, for example, and they click around, they say, oh, here's something. And it tells me a bit of a story. It tells me that this is this uh, institution have, has longevity. It tells me what I could do. It tells me what the objectives of this are, what's going to happen, where I can go. Um, and a quick summary of the story of past and of impact and of needs and future. And here, a lovely logo, a lovely image as well, immediately attracts the eye. It's a, it's a good thing. So we need it to be donor-centered. You can do this. Your needs can be met. We would like to talk to you about what you would like to do. The case then needs to be realistic and compelling. The future of this institution will be safeguarded by the investment that you make with us for the long-term benefit of. It's got to be, I think, it's got to have an emotional resonance with people. We obviously think a lot about the future and the technicalities of the question and so on, but in the end, we give with our hearts. So something's got to resonate with this and say, I want to be part of that. I want to, my passion to translate into something to support this institution. So finding the individual passion is a very important part of it. So ask yourself, when you write your case, because the survey responses this morning would indicate that most places don't seem to have a case for support, for a bequest, when you write it, can you tick those boxes? Can you look at the focus for the individual? Can you look at the donor? Can you look at the impact and the emotion? And you've got to be able then to communicate effectively. It's no good just having good programs if you're not able to communicate well, personally and effectively. <sighs> I'm going to have a sip of water while you spend 10 seconds looking at these questions about the types of communication people prefer, the word legacy, which I started off talking about, and then how do most bequests actually come through? What do they look like? You've got 10 seconds. <clears throat> I can see a couple of people gesticulating on the screen, which is wonderful. It means they're alive. Great to see. Hello. Thank you for waving. <laughs> I can see you. Um, so uh, the types of communication that people most prefer, and again, nothing's totally exclusive, but most they prefer, believe it or not, this is in the UK, uh, four or five years ago, a letter and an event. Those are what they most prefer to have. And I would say 
as starting points. Because once you've established the first relationship and the contact, then obviously you do need to continue the personal engagement because it's like a major gift. But the first thing they like is letters and events, bring people together so they don't feel as if you're suddenly knocking on the door and saying, hello, it's Naomi here. I'm the bequest officer for the University of Canterbury. Can I come in and have a cup of tea and talk to you about your will? I mean, first call, not necessarily a good idea. So what percentage of donors are comfortable with the term legacy? I have a problem with the word legacy. Um, only about 10% of potential bequesters like the word legacy. And most of those tend to be associated in Australia and New Zealand, even to a certain extent in the UK, with returned, uh, returned servicemen, because uh, there's the Legacy Foundation and so on. But the ordinary person in the street like myself, legacy feels a bit somehow awkward. Um, and then most requests these days still tend to be a fixed amount. And this is a, an issue, uh, particularly when you're working with people uh, a bit younger than I am, uh, say they're in their early 60s, and they would hope to live for another 27 years, and they say, I'm going to leave $2,000 to my school. In 27 years' time, that $2,000 is really not worth a great deal. So either there need to be codicil updates or a conversation about perhaps a percentage which would make it um, more linked with what the, val the current value is when somebody makes this decision. You want it to try and be sustained going forward. Um, there were questions which came through on the survey about, okay, how do we communicate all of this? And I'll take you back to one of the very early slides which said that you've got to be as broad and as uh, often as possible. And so what we're saying here is all of these channels, every one of these is a means of communicating about your program and if you have a society about that because there's the visual identity. And it's gotta be consistent. You've gotta be able to talk about impact. You've got to be able to focus, as I've said before, on the people uh, and gather stories. So talk to student recipients of scholarships and bequests. Um, write stories about people who have left bequests and the impact those bequests have had. Make this real, make it personal. If you leave it out there as a, a bequests are a nice thing and they do this, it's only half-hearted. Make those stories come to life, make them really strong, try and illustrate them with nice photos or images and show that whatever is happening in bequests is genuine and you're looking after them well. Now, I did a quick desktop review of New Zealand because I knew I couldn't actually fly across and see you all. Um, so I looked at all the websites. I, somebody, uh, I got a, a list of the top 21 schools, uh, looked at universities and a college, and this was what I found. Only six out of the 21 top schools from some list or other actually had bequest information on their websites that I could find, only six. All eight universities did and the university college had information. Uh, if I wanted to really find that information, it took me at least four clicks. There was nothing fewer than four clicks to actually get to something about bequests. 
I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing. I think you need to be a little bit more upfront with them. Um, in one case, I had to do seven clicks and change a website before I could find information about, um, about bequests. I'm not making too many judgments on that, but I'm just saying that if you are in this game seriously, then having visibility is important. And even though your website is not gonna convert people, having the message there is one of the main channels these days when people are looking around. Drop in at any of the universities or a lot of the schools around Australia, not all schools, but some of the schools around Australia, and you can find that information quite quickly with a couple of clicks. Um, and I think that's just useful. Um, you can find this lovely stuff like the St. Peter's Legacy Society, St. Peter's School in Cambridge in um, New Zealand. Uh, lovely image. Uh, this is, I think, their brochure, which has been um, turned into PDF and put on their, on their website. So you can see that. Talks about commitment. There's quite a lot of information on there, including who you can talk to and phone numbers and everything else. Whether you want to stay with the name a legacy society that's up for, uh, for grabs, but what's in the name? But there are already good examples of impact in the New Zealand scene. Um, if we look at Geelong, this is Geelong Grammar um, in, uh, in Victoria. So you have parts of it. Um, easy to get to this bequest page and then look at the other subsections you've got there about the power what the society is and why it's called that, who belongs, why joined and so on. So quite a lot of information, quite easy to do. Um, the 1888 club is Ormond College, a university college at the University of Melbourne. Again, you can see that it's pretty clear about what to get into. The 1888 club is their name, but it's linked to bequests. Um, and look at the little quote at the bottom, which is a nice testimonial as well as looking after your family into the future, first thing, you know, don't try and make the bequest the primary concern of whoever you talk to, your institution, family first. And a nice image, of course, of students in the future, we're safeguarding investing in the future. Um, <clears throat> some of them are a little bit more straightforward and you can get more information. This is Auckland University easy to find. Uh, Massey University, I did say I did a desktop uh, review so here and um, this is good but I think the the one here about Massey is the little story since inception of Massey and this is how it all came about and this is what it what it does and the last uh, part of this your gift will help Massey advance Aotearoa New Zealand and make a better world and remember I talked about the aspiration of a better community, better world, and how you can be part of that. So a nice, clear, straightforward message and a link which takes you to a bequest brochure and further information. Including testimonials is great. Um, College House again here, the 1850 Bequest Society, a lovely, a lovely message uh, from one benefactor up there. And then another example here down at Geelong Grammar School under the why I joined. So having genuine people giving a reason why they have done it, not necessarily what they've done, but what has motivated them, is a very good way of conveying your message. Again, this is on the website or perhaps in the brochure. Uh, this one was taken from Toronto General Hospital, lovely little story. Um, 
person who didn't have a huge amount of money but wanted to do something in the future. So $10,000 in my will for financial aid for future students. These stories are so important to get out because they talk about real people, real impact, and the future. Sometimes, um, I honestly can't remember which school, that, oh yes I can because it's there. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit harder to find the information. Um, I was looking at, at St. Cuth's here and they, St. Cuth's do a great job, it's a wonderful website, but I had to sort of click through a few bits and pieces to come to this one down the bottom, give a gift in your will. I was looking at donate and fundraise, oh, give your way. It's just, sometimes it gets a little bit hidden and it might indicate that this is not a major concern for an institution to have that as part of its armory. Um, if you do have a club or a society, a legacy club, whatever it is, make sure that they have benefits. For those people who want to be part of it, why? What do they get out of it? Apart from a nice feeling that they have left a gift to the institution, what can they get? work out what the, what will be the difference for them as members of your society as opposed to the ordinary person in the street. Um, so the, here are some, um, the Victoria Legacy Club, Victoria University. Uh, this is my old college at Cambridge in the UK, uh, who are always after me for money and support. Um, but this one, uh, a testimonial, I've always enjoyed our annual uh, gathering, but I now get invited to a lunch every year because I've joined the Great Court Circle, which is the name of their particular request club. So they're offering something very particular to members. Uh, and I've mentioned this before, but you need stories, you need real life examples, you need to have as much as you can. So when people commit, try and get their story, take some photos, get a video, build up a library of material so as you develop a program more and more you have more resources and more stories to tell you don't want to be telling the same story 10 years later on i mean you can but you want to have other stories in the meantime and then come back to it but you just don't want the same stuff time after time after time after time and when you have your stories make sure you're able to tell them wherever there is an opportunity just gently. It's not ever hard sell, it's slow, constant drip. Uh, you can tell them in your magazine. On the left, uh, the Scotch College Foundation, uh, where I was for many years and I uh, helped to set up the Alexander Morrison Circle. And this is a story of Carl Hoffman, um, who's recently, uh, in his bequest, he left uh, $12,500 to the school, but it tells the story of him, his connection with the school, what what his life was like. And on the other side there, um, from Ormond College, um, a secretary who decided she would leave her estate to the college in memory of. And it's a lovely, beautiful story. And again, I think what's important here is it dispels the myth that all bequests have to be huge. Both of these are relative in some terms relatively big twelve and a half thousand dollars in other terms relatively small but if you think of all the alumni from your institution 
And I know it would never happen. But if every one of them left $5,000 to your institution in their will, just imagine how much would accumulate over time if you've got 10,000 alumni or even 5,000 alumni and it just grows every year. So there is a myth that bequests are only for rich people who are gonna leave millions of dollars. The greater impact is having more and more people leave something to build the capital preserved fund or the endowment. Uh, you can add value to your website and to your brochures. So, and, and this is quite common now, give some suggested wording, make sure it's actually been run by a legal team first. Um, and it's pretty straightforward. Again, all of this is here uh, on the slide deck so you can have a look at it later. So this is St. Peter's College in Adelaide. Terrific, they've done a great job with this. Uh, this one, Geelong Grammar School. Frequently asked questions, how do you make a will? Here's a codicil template. All things which can help if people are looking for extra advice. Um, you can then move on to the brochure itself. Now, this is an interesting thing. 15 or 20 years ago, you just tended to call it, you know, this is the school bequest program or something like that. But what we're now looking at, and I think it's much more important, is that if we go back to the notion of a case for support, the brochure tells the case for support. So it's like doing a, a, um, a case for support brochure for your institution on a major campaign. So what is the story? Um, and here, if you see the um, Ormond, Ormond College brochure front page, these, this is not the, I think it's the 1850 or something society there, but it's not that, it's the, for the Ormond stories yet to be told. So there's a, there's a story already evolving. You're giving it a sense of something more than just a program or a club. This one from Oxford University, I think is very, very telling. Um, rhetorical question, who will help me to make the breakthroughs, explore the unknown, communicate insights and fly higher than I thought was possible? I will. And leaving a gift uh, in your will. So the I will becomes the tagline um, for the Oxford University Bequest Program. It's very good. Obviously, nice images, powerful message about building the future and how to make a better world. Uh, here are a couple of other examples. Uh, Biddlecombe, Biddle, oh, I'm sorry, Geelong Grammar, the Biddlecombe Society, the will to give, uh, your will, our future. These are you know, getting a message here about punning around wills, futures and giving. Uh, the Scotch College one, which has advanced hugely I have to say, since my days in 2005, beautiful brochure, your will is their way. You know, your will, my will, our will, our way, their way. You can play with the pronouns, but the actual message is pretty constant. What we do now is the future for these people. Uh, St. Catherine's, your gift, her future. Nicely done, beautiful images. So. Nothing about here is the name of our society. It's the story we're telling, the story we would like you to join us on, this journey to support the future of these young people in school, in college, in university, and so on. I mentioned before about FAQs. 
very good to have them on a website if you've got the capacity or to have some in your brochure. What are the questions that people normally ask? I don't know about you, but certainly in our case, um, we have been prompted to rethink our wills in the current Victorian situation. And we've been asking ourselves quite a few questions about, okay, how do we want to do this? What do we want to achieve? So if you're talking to people about their wills, try and think about the questions you would ask yourself. If I'm going out there and raising funds for my school, what questions would I want to answer? Or would I want to ask and have answered about the bequest? So interrogate yourself first and make sure you've got some good answers around them. Um, and of course, it's very important when you've actually started doing all of this to know how to get out there and how to engage with people. Sitting behind a desk is never a particularly good strategy, even in COVID-19, you've got Zoom and everything else so you can still communicate and you're sitting, but the general thing about just sitting in an office and doing research does not get you good results. And you need to think that engagement is more about engaging with a family than just the individual. And you need to remember that you, the donor development process is going to be the same for any institution around this. Um, we've talked earlier on about who might be your best prospects. Well, annual giving people can work their way up through this very obvious pyramid. There's absolutely nothing new in this at all. It is standard practice. But remember that the estate planned giving bequests, whatever we want to call it, that is likely to be the largest gift that most people ever make to your institution. You get some who do major gifts and so on, but most people would make their largest gift in a charitable bequest. So you're moving up the pyramid to get them interested and involved. And here, again, this is nothing new. The, the actual cycle is there. Um, and I can talk a lot about metrics, but I'm not sure I've got a lot of time here, but um, you do have to have a pipeline. So you have to put people into the identification and research part of your pipeline. You then have to plan around them. You have to cultivate, you have to qualify them. You have to cultivate them, get them engaged. You eventually have to get the philanthropic investment or you have to ask them. You have to confirm it. You then have to put them into stewardship. And if you think of a pipeline, you can put the metrics around every one of those to show what you are doing in an intentional way. It's very important. But at the centre are the people, your potential bequesters, their families. Um, we've talked a little bit about the prospects earlier on, um, but here are a few very good um, uh, segments. And when I talk about putting people into the pipeline. If you have an institute in your institution, one of the first things you should do is to say, okay, who are our best possible prospects? And we've talked about single men, single women, married couples without children, then have a look at this, annual giving donors, scholarship recipients, you can look at all of those. Get all of their names, tag them in your system, bequest project, uh, prospect, or whatever you want to call it and you actually enter them. Then, as you cultivate them, you change their status. 
then if you ask them, you change their status and you can check all of that. But you have to have the people at the beginning of the pipeline. So getting this first group in, entering them, there is your first major task and statistic in the program. And then you can follow through. And you have to commit time to this. I will go back to my first word I used about dilettantism. This is not just a nice to have optional extra, which you do as and when you may have half an hour here or there. If you are going to run a program, you've actually got to think about how you put your time in. Now, if it's one day a week, it's not very much. But even in one day, that's OK, there's a month's worth. How are you going to divide your time up on those four days over a month? And you do have to spend time on all of these things. There was a question, or several questions, about how do we get going on all of this? All right, haven't done it before. Well, here's a little smorgasbord of very easy things you can do before you actually start cultivating for the bequest itself. So it's about getting engagement. And I know, and there was a question there about how do we do this during our um, uh, our time on uh, in COVID. Well, you can't nece necessarily drop off a receipt. Well, you can in New Zealand. You can do anything in New Zealand, you lucky people. Um, we can't do this in Victoria at the moment, so we have to improvise. So we have make phone calls. We have Zoom calls. You can still send letters. You can send emails. But you keep in contact with people and you find out how they are doing before you do anything else. And when some kind of new normality returns, then here are some things you can do. And I'm going to stress this one as well. Seek input and advice, possibly an online survey, possibly um, even doing some face-to-face -face data collection. Uh, if you really want to think about starting a bequest program and you can identify 50 or 60 people you think are possible prospects at the beginning, spend some time and ring them and talk about the possibility. This is what we are thinking of doing. Do you think it's a good idea? What would your level of interest be? Why, why could it be good? Why could it be bad? And so on. So engage them and ask for advice and input, not for money, not for a commitment. But get a test the ground, test the emotion and the feeling. And then when you're actually having the opportunity to talk to them about a possible bequest, um, these are based around both face-to-face, -face, but also um, even doing a Zoom. Um, the, I think there are two things here which are really, really, really important. Beyond the obvious things about take, taking them a gift, those of you who've known me over well over 15 years coming to New Zealand and giving presentations about bake a cake, take some homemade jam, the stuff that I love doing, and it's always nice when you go and take something like that. But beyond the obvious gifts, two things. Make sure you give people enough time to talk to you. It's about active listening, not going and doing a hard sell. This is not the major gift to ask. This is about longer term, listening to them, getting their information, working with them, understanding them. Time and active listening are the two most important ingredients you need to do at this stage. Um, 
A few basics. Women tend on the whole to outlast men. And therefore, if you can, make sure you deal with both partners if possible. But of course, they're not just um, heterosexual normative partners these days. They may be same-sex partners or whatever. You need to involve as many people as possible to get the, um, the real understanding of what's going on. Um, let them tell you about what they want and what they would like to achieve, what their transcendence is going to be for them and then work through about whether this is actually going to align with your institution because if it's not this may not be this may not work for either side so you have to be prepared to understand and sometimes say no um, and don't ever ever do these things you can have firm faqs and codicil statements and so on on your website or in your brochure which have been checked by legal experts but your job you most of you will not be trained to give legal advice um, and so don't and don't give financial advice your job is to try and align uh, they have they need to talk to their financial and legal experts you need to run things past yours before any request is accepted but it's not your job to give the advice. And these things I think are incredibly important for us. Um, so you talk about them. So you need to protect the future of your family, your nearest and dearest, your key concerns. That is the most important thing. When you have done that, when you have looked after your family, then can we talk about how you can join me and how we can give our support and generosity to the school. Because again, the powerful words are we and us. A good bequest person does not go and say, I want you to do this because it is very good. It's can we together help achieve something for the future? So bequest officers should be um, notified bequesters themselves. Although you're not asking for a major gift, you treat the person as if it is a major gift opportunity. And I'll refer you back to the slides much earlier on about the research around people who get thanked, people who are communicated with and so on. These are your main means of engaging and continuing the stewardship and the engagement with the people who are going to leave you a gift in their wills. Very important, the last, three points very important track all your activity it's the thing that most people in fundraising are still struggling with the time to enter the information into your data system so if you have got the pipeline and you've put people up there as you know uh, uh, here is a discovery these people could all be bequesters and then you move them into the next category and you move them into the next category that's got to be recorded your interactions with them have got to be recorded. So if the big bust comes around the corner and you're suddenly removed from the scene, it doesn't stop. But there is information for whoever takes it on. It is one of our, it's our perhaps biggest legacy to our institution that if we are not there, the information is and the whole program can carry on. It's a discipline. Um, volunteers, wonderful things, volunteers, most of the time. 
Not always, because we all know that volunteers can take a huge amount of management and can suck up a lot of um, oxygen as well. But I think this is interesting to think about. Um, it's part of the volunteer thing, but uh, if you're a major gift officer, you're at the here and now, you're on a campaign, you've got a fixed time, you've got targets to meet, all of that. And so you are generally a slightly different sort of person. You're focused on outcomes now, now, now. If you're a bequests person, then you're looking longer term, you're looking engagement, you're, you're giving time, you're not concerned quite so much about, I've got to close this now, I've got to report back so much. You still have to have that, you need to have targets, and the general target around bequests is how many people can you um, encourage or give the opportunity to a year who actually then sign up. That's your main bequest target. And it mustn't be something which requires people to just go bang, bang, I'm not gonna leave this house until you've signed up kind of thing. That's not what it's about. So they're slightly different approaches. Um, and people who work in bequests, whether they are volunteers or the staff, I think have to have these qualities. Um, they're not totally results driven. They have to be good and they have to keep up to their metrics, but these are qualities which will help very, very much their ability to interact with potential requesters and give them the opportunity to sign up to leave something to the institution. And I mean, the word, I, I have used it before, used again, the good people in this have passion for the institution, they have passion for the cause they have passion for the case and they commit as donors or bequesters themselves if it's just a job it becomes very drab and people see through that very quickly so the people who work best in this are wonderfully passionate involved people and they are people people if I can use that horrible phrase, they love interacting with people on the longer time frame. Um, you do events and activities. Um, oh my gosh, you've got 20 odd slides to go in seven minutes. Is that right, Sheila? Yep, looks like seven minutes. So I'm, go I'm gonna have to canter a little bit. Yeah, and we need to leave a little bit of time for questions if we can. Okay, so yeah. the events and stuff, as I say, the slides are all here. You will do events, this is, the first thing I launched back in 2006, I still love it, it was a great day. Uh, we had 80 people turn up for this, uh, our first ever bequest luncheon was sponsored, one of the things about it, and it was about diet, exercise, good eating when you're older and so on. Um, but you need to think about your demographic, um, there needs to be a purpose, there needs to be an evaluation, you need to think about how it can be improved next time, etc, etc. Don't overspend, most older people like to see good value for money. So give them things which are nice, which are good, but not over elaborate. Um, the cocktail parties can be good early evening. Uh, never run them too late for your older bequesters because many people don't like driving at night. Um, lunches are generally good. Um, have them earlier, so 12, 12.30 lunch rather than 1.30. Again, I've noticed that older people like to eat a little bit earlier. Um, they're great fun uh, opportunities for presentations and networking. Afternoon teas are wonderful. 
particularly if you can add the students to the mix so they can talk with real young people. There's nothing energizes older people more than having good young people around who are interesting and articulate. And of course, they're cost effective. Have members only events. So I've talked about this before. What are the benefits? If you sign up for a bequest, you join the Alexander Morrison Circle or the Bidicombe Society or the Melbourne Grammar, Witherby Tower one. What are there any benefits? And the answer is you need to find two or three which become exclusive invitations, exclusive events. So there's a bit of ad value. Um, this one, uh, recently I came across, this is in um, uh, Princeton University. They have set up this wonderful webinar series for old people. They completely busted the myth that old people don't get on with technology. These webinars, they're running them on, I think every two months, they're having so many signups. Uh, and each of the experts is an alumnus of Princeton. They're on topics relevant to retirees. And here's just one example. Um, you've always got to have the cause. It's just don't rattle the empty tin and say, give to my bucket, which may or may not have a hold in it. Have a cause, have a real purpose. Um, and as I said before, bequests can be the last and most serious gift a person makes. And so you need to be able to focus on that and be sensitive and work with them. And it can take time. And here are three questions which are really good when you're talking to people about what would you like to accomplish if you were to leave a gift to our school or institution? What difference would you like to make to the institution, to the world, and what impact? Look at those questions and work them into the conversations you are having. And as I've talked about this already, um, about the transcendence factor, the psychological considerations, you really are helping people to think about what happens after they're no longer here. You do have to have the word no in your vocabulary. Um, that if there are really weird things or impossible requests, say no and have the lawyers and the financial advisors ready to deflect anything, any questions to you. It's not your role. And in stewardship, this applies across everything, of course, and there's nothing here which you won't have seen before, but make sure you are in constant contact. I would say three times a year, personal contact with every known requester. You need to ensure that once they've made their commitment, they stay committed. And this is part of what the Bequest Society does and part of your responsibility. There are things which, again, they shouldn't be in the least bit surprising to you. Make it warm, personal, use photos, send cards, find connections with current students and so on and so forth. And think of ways that you can help older people be part of events or request groups or whatever they may be. You have to help sometimes and go out of your way. Um, and really, this is the final one. Um, you've got, it's, this is active. It is intentional. It's a program. It's structured. There are metrics involved, which I could, so I could talk a lot about how to get those metrics in according to what your institution is doing. 
But it is, if you do this well, if it is intentional, if you get the right people, and if you don't sit on your bum drinking red wine in your office and pretending to be very wise, reading the BOW Rich 200 or whatever it is, you will meet amazing people, hear fantastic stories. You will help to secure the future of your institution and align these aspirational transcendent ideas with the needs and future demands of the institution. I've given you some references to where all of the um, data comes from, so you can go and check a lot of that up um, if you want to. I haven't made it up, it's not anecdotal. And the last thing is, you're bound to have questions. I'll take two or three questions now, I think, if, uh, if Sheila wants to send them through. But feel free to email me, I'll happily take some of these offline. There's been a huge amount to go through. I wish I'd had half a day uh, and been there with you interactively. But thank you for your patience. I hope you've got something out of this. Please feel free to email me or, or go through Educate Plus um, and we will keep in touch. And if there are any questions, Sheila, which I can answer. Yeah, Naomi, did you want to pick some out of that? Make yes, yeah. yeah. Um, Dawn Gordon has a question for you, Alan. Um, and there's some wonderful, wonderful comments of people saying thank you so much for an absolute masterclass and a wonderful session. Dawn's question is, how, how do you talk about impact when you're a new institution? You can't necessarily talk about what has really happened in the past, but what you can do is to look at parallel examples. So um, if you have scholarships, or for example, you can talk about a scholarship program and the way that lives are changed by scholarships, and then you can talk about how a scholarship could be set up, or how an endowment program could provide, you know, basically people I think like the, the needs-based or the DEI scholarships, diversity, equity and inclusion. But you can talk about the current examples and then say, well, bequests could do this and what we would do would be to guarantee that any gift that you make would go to support this kind of, of project. It's a very good question. When you're starting off, it's hard to, to bring those examples, but you will have other examples of impact of some sort in your institution. And that's where you start. Great. And just further to that, um, have you some ideas of how you could offer benefits as well? Once again, being a new institution, I guess it's a... Yeah, uh, it depends on the institution. Um, if it's a school, schools normally do wonderful things like uh, play productions, musical productions, uh, things like that. So offering a special preview or special seats on the first night with a little gathering first, maybe for uh, afternoon tea or cocktails, depending on the nature of the school. It's something to bring people together and to give them something, a, a very special little occasion where they get treated specially to something the school already does. Um, and I think when you're starting out, use what the school does, which is good, it could be a sporting event, it could be a say, um, musical or uh, other cultural activity, which is a very special thing for the school, represents the school, and you get special entry and a special bit of treatment around that. Maybe you can meet some of the cast afterwards, or maybe you can uh, shake the hand of uh, the winning rugby captain once they've trashed the local team, whatever it may be. But you just give them something a little bit special around ordinary events. And it suddenly builds. And then you'll discover other things which people like. Um, and you can begin to build them into your program as it expands. 
Oh, that's a, that's a great response. Thank you, Alan. I've got one more question just before some final uh, comments, and that is um, about staff, because um, sometimes... <laughs> would you like to comment about staff and making bequests? <laughs> yes. Um, I'm very happy to talk about staff making bequests. There are many examples of schools around the place, um, certainly in Australia, and I think in New Zealand as well, I've heard about, where long-term members of staff um, have left considerable gifts to schools um, to basically, I suppose, commemorate many, many years there. Uh, when I was doing this at Scotch College, um, we had two or three staff members who left uh, bequests. And my, my approach to them was to talk to them after these were retired members of staff, was to actually visit them, talk to them about what they do now, their time at the school, what it was like, the changes, what their attitude towards the school is like. Um, in one case, it was a, a, a gentleman had lost his wife a couple of years earlier, was you know, a little bit lonely, so I visited him several times and eventually talked about whether he would like to commemorate his wife in some way, uh, given his 40-year experience with the school. And through ongoing conversations, he did in fact create um, a scholarship, but he named it after himself, not his wife, which is quite interesting, really. Uh, <laughs> And, he, and, you know, it was about a six or $700,000 bequest in the end. And it was over about 18 months of discussions. Um, but yes, uh, if pr provided that the staff uh, had a good time, which most of them did if they stayed for a long time, provided they left on their terms rather than got booted out as a bit of dead wood, uh, and provided that they still have some connection with the school or the institution, then they're very, very good opportunities for having those discussions. And I know a lot of schools, I'm actually a member of the Scotch College Old Staff Club, even though I didn't retire from Scotch, I'm now retired from full-time work and they invited me to join as a former member of staff. And so I get to catch up with uh, people I taught with, I started at Scotch in 85, I left in 2007, and I've gone back in 2019, and there are t those staff I knew. Um, and it's wonderful to catch up with some of them again and, you know, probably have conversations about what are you doing with your all that extra money from your superannuation once you've looked after your kids? You, know, you can have all sorts of conversations, and former <laughs> members of staff can be wonderful supporters of an institution. Alan, uh, look, thank you very, very much. Um, just on behalf of everybody who's been here this afternoon in this webinar, um, thank you for a, a very, very good um, presentation. And as one of our um, attendees said, an absolute masterclass. Um, I'm going to take away a couple of points. One is just the absolute importance of bequests. You've demonstrated just what the potential is there and that there is data to back it up which we can take back to our institutions. Um, thank you um, for instilling in us to talk about the impact that a bequest has and to be future focused in our conversations and to make time and to listen really carefully and actively. Um, uh, the other thing I'm going to take away is the word transcendence. I think we're all going to be using that in the next week. It's a wonderful, wonderful word. And the most important thing I think I'm going to take away today is the fact that if you make a bequest, you live longer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm signing mine next week, I think. <laughs>
<laughs> Alan, uh, just uh, once again, on behalf of all of us, thank you very, very much for your generosity and sharing the knowledge. Uh, and we, we are off to do good work out there and to make a difference ourselves with uh, you behind us. Thank you very, very much. It's thank been a great you. pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Matewa. <laughs> okay. Goodbye. Bye.